Fontenelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, The Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast, online at www.schwepp.net. Episode 29, Other Worlds, Inner Worlds, and Utopias. The time has come to introduce Plato's Republic, aka The Politics, one of his most influential works. It is also one of the most complex Platonic dialogues. In its amazing theories of epistemology, in its arguments about immaterial forms, in its political thought, its explorations of justice, its powerful and strange myths of the cave and the myth of Ur, and much else besides. Perhaps in part because of all this density and complexity, the Republic has been a locus for later thought about Plato's esotericism. Plato is always doing sneaky stuff, but in the Republic, he does some really sneaky stuff, which has led to the dialogue becoming a popular candidate for esoteric interpretation. There are undeniable elements of harmonic theory and number ontology, the kind of thing we've already seen in the Timaeus. But in the Republic, they are, if anything, even more prominent, resulting in a dialogue which is actually structured according to esoteric harmonic principles hidden within the dialogue itself, the actual bones of the text. Or at least that's the theory, which we shall be exploring. Then there is the ambiguous and rather extreme political theory of the Republic. This has led authors like Karl Popper to characterize Plato as the ur-fascist, the intellectual father of totalitarianism. But other readers, such as Leo Strauss, an influential theorist of esoteric writing, consider that there is an esoteric political message to the Republic, an idea to which we shall also have to return in a later episode. The list here could be extended, and we wouldn't want to forget the ancient Platonist readers of the Republic, who bring their esoteric interpretive lenses to bear on the dialogue with particular glee. Proclus's reading of this work is especially fertile for esoteric correspondences with a whole extended tradition of perennial wisdom, including the Orphic poems, the Chaldean oracles, Plotinus, Iamblichus, and much else besides, all of it to be found hidden within Plato's dialogue. The dialogue, the Republic, is immensely long, complex, and full of surprises. Thus, it will be no surprise that we shall devote several episodes to it. If you listened to our episode introducing the Timaeus, you heard us dwelling on the many firsts of the dialogue. It's the first mathematical account of astronomy in Greek. It's the first appearance of the idea of astral gods in Greek. It's the first appearance of a creator god in the Western tradition. The list goes on and on. The Republic also contains many firsts, but none perhaps as compelling as its status as the world's first utopia. And utopia will be the subject of this episode. But when we consider utopia and utopias in the context of Western esotericism, we're drawn irresistibly toward other kinds of imaginary or imaginal worlds which populate the esoteric traditions. Surely not every other world is a utopia. Thinking about what exactly we mean by utopia has set me off wondering what other kinds of realms are important in Western esotericism, and what I thought was going to be an easy task, defining utopia and considering some other examples of it alongside Plato's account of the perfect state, this in fact turned out to be almost impossible. 
I just don't know how we can define a utopia in a way which will demarcate it strictly from its many cousins. Is Hades, the Greek underworld, a kind of utopia? Are the afterlives posited in the Abrahamic religions or other celestial realms where gods live and go about their business? Are these utopias? Perhaps not. But then what exactly is the difference between this kind of other world and a utopian other world? What about the heavenly Jerusalem in the apocalypse of John in the Bible? It's a kind of esoteric geometrical ideal pattern. And it will come at the end of days when all the prophecies are fulfilled and the earth is renewed. Is this a utopia? It somehow seems too theological to be a utopia in the usual sense of the term. What about tales of the golden age, such as we find in the biblical account of Eden or in Hesiod's works and days, telling of a time when human life was much better than it is now? Are these utopias? Is Plato's world of forms a utopia? We need to explore all these other types of non-normal realm of being some of them constructed by authors as a kind of thought experiment, and others seen as actual real places, though not the same place as we live in our day-to-day -day lives. And try to see if we can gain some foothold in these shifting realms from which to speak about them. So let's start with utopia. We can begin by trying to contextualize the ideal state of Plato's Republic a little bit. The dialogue begins with a discussion of the nature of justice with Socrates' interlocutors giving various different definitions of justice. The conversation stretches out over the course of ten long books, and further on in the dialogue it leads to Socrates taking over, basically, and with the assent of certain of his comrades, designing, step by step, an imaginary state in which justice would be perfectly expressed. This is, as Socrates says, unlikely ever really to exist. It's explicitly a kind of thought experiment not a manifesto, a fact which is often lost on readers of Plato from the late Platonists on to Karl Popper, who take Socrates as some kind of Karl Marx prognosticating the society of the future. So what is this perfect imaginary state like? Well, there's a lot to say here, which we'll have to wait for next episode, but we can say now that it's a highly hierarchical corporatist state. The rulers are true philosophers men and women who've attained to perfect consciousness of the forms through a truly epic educational cursus involving decades of mathematical training and much else, culminating in direct knowledge of the world of forms. Their access to the higher realities gives them wisdom beyond the normal lot of men. The philosopher rulers are thus the perfect rulers, and in fact the only people who could conceivably be suited to rule, since only they really know how the universe works. Obviously, this reflects badly on the actual rulers found in the world of everyday life that we all have to uh, live with, and that is surely one of Plato's points. Below the philosopher rulers in the hierarchy is the class of auxiliaries, or guardians, who are the military caste. Like the historical Spartans of Plato's time, who, let us remember, had defeated Athens in the Peloponnesian War during Plato's youth, and so were a very vivid image to his mind, the guardians own no property individually and have no families, living instead in communal barracks and pursuing nothing but the cultivation of martial excellence for the defense of the state. They are the perfect, incorruptible military force. Below the guardians are the masses, everyone else, who are unphilosophical 
not much good in a fight, and basically serve the day-to-day needs of the higher strata of society so they don't have to do anything like manual labor or sullying their hands with commerce. Now, this may not strike modern readers as the ideal exemplum of justice, but the concept here is that everyone in society is placed exactly where they belong, where they're suited to be. There is upward and downward class mobility through a complex examination system, so that should a potentially excellent philosopher be born to the lower classes, he will be quietly removed and placed where he belongs in the higher education system which produces philosophers. But while I say he will be removed, we should remember that Socrates makes it clear that there's no theoretical objection for women to fill the role of any of the classes, any more than men. Ability and aptitude will be what matters. So philosopher rulers may be women, guardians may be women, who will engage in all the activities of the barracks life, including exercising naked along with the men. So one of the radical aspects of Plato's program is that it completely subverts Greek gender norms. Women are neither wives nor mothers, since the family is dissolved in the service of the state. And when children are born, they're immediately removed from their mother's care, so as to have no individual family loyalties, which might hinder their full devotion to the state. Such a state will be morally superior, philosophically guided, and militarily unstoppable. So what makes this imagined state of Plato's specifically a utopia? Well, when we talk about a utopia, I guess we tend to mean an imagined society, which serves in some way as a thought experiment that tells us something about real societies and how they might be made better. Plato's perfect state is undoubtedly this, among other things. The whole project is an attempt to understand how humans are, how reality is, and then to design a better way for humans to live in that reality so as to eliminate all the problems we seem to run into again and again. It isn't meant to be practicable in its whole scope, but it does surely attempt to make some practical points which might be put into action. I think a key aspect of what we tend to mean by utopia is that it acts as a kind of distorting mirror of our own real societies. This is true of both ideal utopias like Plato's and also of dystopian visions like those of Orwell or Aldous Huxley, which give a warning about where our real society might be headed. So is this perhaps the definition of a utopia, a thought experiment which tells us not about the ideal realm it depicts, but fundamentally about ourselves? It does seem to be the case that when people talk about utopias and dystopias, they do mean something along these lines. But there are problems with such a definition. Surely depictions of heavenly other worlds fit the bill here too. Dante's journey through the afterlife in the Divine Comedy clearly has elements of commentary on his own society, even depicting various real people, household names in his day, being tortured in the pits of hell. If that isn't social commentary, I don't know what is. But it somehow seems a bit counterintuitive to me to call Dante's hell and paradise utopias. They are other realms, surely, but I somehow find it hard to think of them as utopias. Maybe this is because they aren't in any normal sense of the term political. When we think of a utopia, we tend to imagine some kind of political or social experiment in action, right? So not so much a theological experiment or a magical land or a realm of ideal unchanging realities like the world of forms. So maybe this leads us to our definition of utopia. A utopia, for our purposes, is an imagined alternative social and or political model which serves as a critique of really existing social and or political circumstances. We can use that as a working definition, but let's look a bit more at this word, utopia. We commonly use the term as signifying 
a wonderful place, an ideal to be strived for, although it's unachievable. When we talk about someone who has rather unrealistic and wondrous goals, we talk about them as being a bit of a utopian, right? But we must consider the dark twin of the ideal state, the worst state possible. The term dystopia has been coined to describe an imagined society which is horrible and serves as a warning. The world of George Orwell's 1984 is the classic example, and it is truly ghastly. And we should also be aware that many utopias, which were designed with the best intentions to be the ideal state, prove in fact to be horror shows. Um, Lenin's transformation of the Russian people into a stateless, freely organized body of voluntarily led cooperation didn't quite work out the way it was planned. And these things called gulags were invented, which never appeared in Marx's program. But the original use of the term utopia, of course, comes from Thomas More's book of that title. That's Sir Thomas More, or even Saint Thomas More, depending on whom you ask, first published in 1516. And it's a coinage of More's, meaning no land or no place. From the Greek ou, meaning no, topos meaning place, and the ia ending, which is the standard Greek toponymic ending as a way you name a place. So Alexandria is the place of Alexander. And More's utopia is intriguingly problematic if we try to characterize it either as an ideal state or as a dystopia. Moore's utopia is an island nation, highly organized along rigorous communistic lines, highly regulated and with all sorts of practices that would have been considered heretical or revolutionary in Moore's time, and even, one suspects, to Moore himself. The utopians aren't Christians, for one thing, and they practice voluntary euthanasia in the case of terminal illness which also strikes one as not entirely Christian. Moore, we should remember, was an influential politician and someone who was willing to die at the stake rather than recognize the right of Henry VIII to declare independence for the Church of England from the Catholic Church. So Moore is a Catholic martyr who refuses to allow for this newfangled Church of England idea. Not the sort of man one expects to dispense with Christianity, in his ideal of society. So people differ as to how serious Moore was in his depiction of utopia, and also, assuming that he is serious, they differ as to how univocally his message is to be taken. Are we really to think that a Catholic traditionalist who is willing to die for the church is seriously recommending a reform of society along communistic non-Christian lines? We may doubt it. Plato isn't the only writer who can play tricks on his audience by masking his true intentions. But the point here is that Moore's utopia is not necessarily meant to be seen as a perfect or ideal society, although it obviously has elements of such a society in it. Plato's Atlantis, discussed in the previous episode, is another utopia of this type. It is weird and wonderful, and described in insane detail, but while it suggests all kinds of intriguing possibilities for human society, it is definitely not a perfect society. While neither is it exactly a dystopia? It's an imagined society that tells us things about ourselves, but is by no means thought to be ideal. So we have a term from the 16th century work of Thomas More, utopia, which we often find used projected backwards in time. Hence, statements like Plato's Republic contains the first utopia in Western literature. And we're not going here with the popular meaning of utopia as an unreal place, but one which is fantastic and great and harmonious and perfect. That doesn't have much to offer us. 
We want to follow Moore's lead and include in our meaning of the term the good with the bad. Both dystopias and eutopias will fall under our definition of utopia. We might cite Plato's Republic at one end of the spectrum. This is an intended, ideal, perfect society, or the closest you can get to that possible. And Orwell's 1984 at another end of the spectrum, noting that many utopias lie somewhere along the spectrum between the two. So that's what we mean by utopia. This is a literary genre. The history of Western esotericism is full of utopias. Tommaso Campanella's City of the Sun depicts another highly organized theocratic society, organized along lines suggested by a magical and astrological worldview. This society will be perfect because it will be regulated according to the stars and according to the occult properties of nature, which its esoteric philosophic rulers understand. The beginning of the 18th century saw the publication of an anonymous English text entitled The Sophic Constitution, which depicts a perfect society ruled by alchemists. In the 19th century, the genre of utopia really explodes, with a delightful range of esoteric approaches to societal perfection, with pride of place being held perhaps by the great François-Marie Charles Fourier, whose early 19th century works depict the perfect form of social organization known as harmony, a new world order made up of phalanxes or phalasteries, small communes of polyamorous erotic socialists who live together in a state of nature, having completely freed their desires from the shackles of hypocritical civilization. In this brave new world, the results of society's perfection will not be limited to equal rights for women and satisfying ludic work for all, nor even to delightful orgies, although they will include all of these. They will give more surprising results still, such as that the seas will actually turn into delicious lemonade, and human beings will develop the archibra, a long tail with a hand and an eye at its end. Sign me up. We shall return to all these and many, many more visions of the way things could be as we explore the history of Western esotericism. And we've probably introduced the genre of the utopia sufficiently now, both for our treatment of Plato's Republic and for further utopian excursions as the podcast progresses. But I should like now to turn to the more problematic cousins of the utopia, or perhaps its great-grandparents, the other worlds. Plato's Republic is, of course, not the first imaginary or imaginal place, even if it is the first utopia. In fact, imaginary places are a common feature of human cultures pretty much across the board. The oldest story in the world, that is the oldest story preserved in writing, is the tale of Gilgamesh. Some of the action of Gilgamesh takes place in the normal Near Eastern world of the 3rd millennium BCE. But Gilgamesh also undertakes a journey to the realm of the dead. This is a magical underworld, or otherworld, where different laws apply than in the normal world. In our discussions of ancient Greco-Roman magic, of the pre-Socratics, and of Orpheus, we've made several journeys to the Greek underworld, sometimes a dark and forbidding place, but also one with surprisingly positive aspects to it, a place full of the dead who know things that we don't, so it's a place where you can get knowledge, and it's a place where the traveler cannot usually go until he's dead, but which in exceptional circumstances can be explored by the living 
And it's a place with more than one zone within it, sometimes a zone of light and blessedness rather than the murk and gloom, which we traditionally associate with Hades. Ancient Egypt has left us an amazing literature about the complex other worlds of the dead in the Egyptian tradition. The list can, of course, be projected forward in time and across many cultures. The land of fairy in Northern Europe, where time notoriously moves differently than in our daylit world, which can lead to problems for visitors because when they return to the daylit world, they find that days or even years have passed while they spent an evening dancing with the fairies. I take it that the techno-dystopian theme of alien abduction stories is an echo of this sort of other world, which would explain the persistent claims of lost time by UFO abductees, not to mention the funny-looking human-like alien figures who are exactly what you might expect the fairy folk to be like if they went all techno. Sometimes the other world can be in the sky, as in Plato's Phaedrus, as in later Platonism, and in many Gnostic texts. The Manichaeans, too, were concerned with heavenly ascent, with many stages and interesting deities met along the way. We should return to the theme of cosmic ascent later in the podcast, as it is one of the most important and under-researched themes in the study of Western esotericism. And I can't wait to get onto this material because it's absolutely fascinating. Sometimes the other world is an island. The Celts seem to have imagined that the other world was an island in the Western Ocean, for example. And this is a convenient theme which was embraced by many later utopian writers from more onward, but which we've already seen in Plato's Atlantis. Islands seem to be ideal for creating imagined societies, but also for less intentionally planned communities, such as the Isles of the Blessed in Hesiod's myths, or the many magical islands visited by Odysseus in Homer's Odyssey, or the Western Isles of the Celts. Many more examples could be given. The point is, there are magical islands out there which sometimes constitute a different order of reality altogether, where different laws apply. Sometimes there's a whole host of other worlds, as in the Norse mythologies. In Greek mythology, you basically have three worlds, at least in the way the earlier mythology has been reconstructed. There's the world of the heavens, where the gods live. There's our world in the middle, and there's an underworld down below. In the Norse mythologies, there are nine realms, where our realm, Midgard, is just one of the nine, all connected by the world tree, Yggdrasil. The ancient Egyptians had a similarly complex structure of invisible realms, as did the Manichaeans and many Gnostic groups. So the idea that there's just one other world is an oversimplification. Many esoteric currents and just cultural currents more generally theorize a whole branching structure of other worlds often including our world within the structure as a relatively insignificant part. Now, one characteristic of all these different types of other world, generally speaking, which I think it's important to highlight, is the topos of travel to and from the other world. There are other worlds with no traffic with this world at all, but they're surprisingly few. The gods of the Hellenistic philosophical school of Epicureanism, to take one example, live in a hermetically sealed realm of bliss from which they have absolutely no reason ever to leave because they're in bliss and which admits absolutely no one from outside. So this is an example of a sealed off other world that isn't really much good to anyone except the gods who live there. But it's much more common for another world both to send out emissaries and to welcome, at least occasionally and in exceptional circumstances, human travelers. Consider the classical underworld of Hades. Everyone goes there in the end, of course, but they're dead at that stage. 
But the interesting stuff happens in the outlying cases. Ghosts can be called up from Hades into our world under special circumstances, in which case humans can access their privileged knowledge. And as we saw in the Catabasis myths of Orpheus in episode 22, in which you can find in Homer's Odyssey, book 11, or book 6 of Virgil's Aeneid, and in a host of other sources from other cultures as well, a living human being can go there and return if he's up to the perilous journey. Orpheus does it, Heracles does it in some stories, and a few other people make the trip. At the risk of sounding all Jungian, I think there is surely something very primordial and universal in this idea of the journey to an other world, followed by a return, usually armed with new knowledge acquired while there. We see similarities but also differences when we look at the visionary accounts of visits to other realms in the Abrahamic faiths. And this brings us to the final subject I want to talk about in this episode, inner worlds. Sometimes the other world is explicitly within us, rather than somewhere out there. Probably as long as people have been having dreams, they've been noticing that there seems to be a separate world with its own rules within our breasts, one which, while we're there, can be utterly as real as the more or less shared world of the experience we have every day. But the kind of inner world which most concerns us as amateurs of Western esotericism is of a different kind. This is the kind exemplified and perhaps inspired by, in part, Plato's world of forms. This is the other world which one accesses by going inward, a world which appears in consciousness rather than as a sort of bricks and mortar type place, but which is nonetheless a real place. Usually, an inner world like this is a more real place than our everyday experience. We find in the Kabbalah, and especially perhaps in Islamic esoteric currents and Sufism, ideas of invisible worlds which can be visited by the traveler through a process of going inwards. Now, while dreams traditionally may bring true knowledge, and there is an extensive literature which aims at enabling us to discern true prophetic dreams from the normal dreams we have, which don't really tell us anything that important, so goes the theory, the world of dreams is rarely described as a genuine place with its own stable topography. The world of images, however, in the Sufism of Ibn Arabi, by contrast, is such a place. You can meet people there, you can meet prophets there, you can have all manner of visionary experiences, and many dreamlike things happen there, in fact, but this is another sort of place entirely from the place we visit when we dream. The modern esoteric thinker Henri Corbin, influenced by this idea in his readings of Ibn Arabi and other Islamic thinkers, among other influences, coined the term mundus imaginalis to describe this place, the imaginal world. He used the term imaginal to differentiate what he saw as an inner faculty of humans for what you might call a true imagination, as opposed to imaginary, which indicates falsehood, nugatory, meaningless stuff we dream up, which has no real significance. We shall, of course, return to Corman's theory of the imaginal in later episodes. Now, this mundus imaginalis in the thought of Corbin is a place of true spiritual insight and reality, a shared destination to which many travelers may arrive by the process of journeying inwards. And this 
way of thinking that the inner realm may be a shared place is very, very strikingly in contrast with dominant ways of thinking about consciousness nowadays, at least in modern Western societies, where the inner realm is a realm of total subjectivity, and the only thing we could really agree on would be some kind of realm of, say, the physical world stripped of all its interpretive baggage and just presented as it is by scientific instruments. This almost reverses that worldview. And many other thinkers in the Western esoteric traditions have differently constituted inner realms, which nevertheless share this characteristic of being real places, not material places and not visible places, but real and visitable. And I think that this sort of inner world is actually one of the defining features of Western esoteric thought, which tends to differentiate it from other currents. If you think about it, the idea that there's an inner world with genuine reality, a genuine place to it, which the seeker can visit, really is a strong, though not universal, belief among Western esotericists over time. So I'd like to flag that up here as something that in my thinking is a kind of red thread through the history of Western esotericism, and we shall return to this idea in later episodes, of course. I'm especially intrigued by the cases where the two kinds of realm, the other world and the inner world, are the same. Plotinus, our late antique Platonist philosopher, presents the classic example of this. His inner realm of nous, which is the world of forms, can actually be traveled in. It has a topography. It has other people in it. And of course, the forms are there, as well as the noetic gods, and actually everything that is in the phenomenal world, but shorn of time, space, and qualities. If uh, you find all that hard to take in, I don't blame you. We'll come back to it. Now, this world of nous, this inner world, also has a highest point from which one can cross the boundary between being and non-being and encounter the one itself, the origin of all. At the same time, this journey is also a literal ascent of the soul through the celestial cosmos. And the nous is actually situated outside the sphere of the fixed stars. Now, that's my reading of Plotinus anyway and I shall argue for it in due course, but you have to admit this is heady stuff. The journey inward and the journey up are the same. We shall return to all the themes adibrated in this episode in due course, but first we should bring ourselves down to earth and address Plato's utopia, and in doing so, we shall, as it happens, also be addressing both a theory of an inner world and an account of a visit to the other world. That's the kind of universal book that Plato's Republic is. So maybe we won't be coming down to earth after all. Anyway, join us next time for an introduction to Plato's Republic. And until then, please stay esoteric. Esoteric.